So, Father, we just thank you that you are a God who is at work, and we see and we know that in so many different ways. We pray particularly this morning for this initiative that you've stirred in our hearts to, to be a church that not only celebrates you as we gather to worship you and read your word and take sacrament together, but celebrates the greatness of who you are beyond the four walls of the, the church and the community around us. And we pray particularly for your blessing to be upon the soup kitchen. We pray for the logistics right from the cook-up today in the kitchen to the organizing of team members, the promotion of the activities, Lord. And we ask that you would draw those that you would have, both to be a part of the service, but also attending there. And Lord, I certainly ask that it would be not only a wonderful way to physically meet a need in the community, but there'd be opportunity for conversations, for proclamation, for the declaration of who you are, that we can also fulfill the deep longing and spiritual need of every heart, which is to know you, Lord Jesus, and to find the faith, the salvation that you offer to us through faith in your name. Father, we pray as well just for the uh, proclamation of your word this morning. Pray that you'd help us, each and every one of us, myself included, Lord, that you'd speak to us, that you'd open our eyes to see you, that you'd give us listening ears to hear what it is that your spirit is speaking to each and every one of us. Come and have your way. Do a deep and lasting and abiding and fruit-bearing work in our hearts, we pray, for the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. So we're in Acts chapter 11. For those who've been around, I know it's a long weekend and we do have some visitors. Welcome to the visitors. We have others who are here, there and everywhere. So just to get you up to speed, Acts chapter 10, of course, the last two weeks we focused on this incredible transition and turning point in the book of Acts. Really is a moment to note as the gospel becomes something that moves beyond just the surrounding regions as Christ himself proclaimed it would from Jerusalem to Judea to the ends of the world. And the Lord sovereignly and intentionally opens the door to the Gentiles through two main characters, that's Peter and Cornelius. And we've read that account, we looked last week about how that moment of the sovereign working of the Lord mirrors so powerfully, prophetically, importantly, the first day of Pentecost. As the Gospels proclaimed, as the Spirit of God is poured out, and uh, Peter and his six companions, almost in some amazement, they say, well, you know, the Lord is clearly doing a work here, and we are amazed and surprised to see the fullness of what is outfolding before our eyes. So, just to get us up to the passage that we'll read this morning, the first portion of Acts 11 is Peter then, remembering he stays some time with Cornelius, he teaches the people, he heads back then to Jerusalem and he encounters some opposition. Not everybody is overjoyed and celebrating with Peter about this new work of the Lord as the Holy Spirit's poured out and as the gospel is now being proclaimed to Gentiles. And yet Peter recounts exactly what the Lord had done and how he'd been led to, to be a part of the Lord's plan and agenda. And if we just read one verse at the end of um, this account in verse 18 of chapter 11, it says, When they, and this is all the people who'd gathered around, some to accuse Peter, some to, to hear and listen with curiosity at what God had done. 
When they heard these things, all that the Lord had accomplished through Peter and Cornelius, the Holy Spirit being poured out, it says they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. It's a phenomenal, powerful, important conclusion that they reach as a result of hearing Peter's testimony. And that's where we pick up the story now. So in some ways we've seen, as I've hopefully uh, made very clear, the beginnings of this turning point. And we're now going to see how we move from the beginnings to the full reality of what the Lord was wanting to accomplish in this great and glorious unfolding of his mission to proclaim the good news of God through Christ Jesus to the ends of the earth. And we'll pick up the story in verse... 19. It says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, and we'll remember this, we talked about that particular passage some weeks ago, how the Christians, God had been doing a lot in their midst, and it was actually persecution, and particularly the martyrdom of Stephen. He became the first martyr that the Lord used to scatter and to spread the gospel throughout the region. And we'll see the trickle-down effect there. It's gone beyond the region, even into a number of places that are in the Greek or the Gentile world. So they've been scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen and traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of the men of Cyprus and Cyrene who, on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, that is, the Greek-speaking Gentiles also preaching the Lord Jesus. And it says, and I love this description, verse 21, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. Remember at this stage, the the hub, the base of the church, most of the apostles were still present in Jerusalem. It was very much still the hub of the Christian community at this time. So it says, the report came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So we see here the the beginnings of what we could call the church at Antioch, and in fact, just a spoiler alert, but we'll see the Church of Antioch really become not only the, the central entity involved in releasing Paul and Saul on their missionary journeys to the gospel, but it really becomes the hub of the church in the Gentile world. So let's read on and see what it is that Lord, the Lord will do through this community of believers that are forming from the scattering. They're coming from all over. The hand of the Lord's upon them to the extent that Barnabas has been sent to check it out. He comes and reports with great joy. He says, well, there's great grace present amongst the people. And that should even, for some of us anyway, bring memories of what the Lord was doing some years earlier. And we'll draw some correlations shortly. So Sir Barnabas, at this point, went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And just to give you a bit of a timeline, this is around about actually 10 years from Saul, who becomes Paul's conversion. So 10 years on, so Barnabas goes to look for Saul. 
And when he'd found him, he brought him to Antioch, and for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, that's interesting in and of itself. So Barnabas has been sent there. He's found the hand of the Lord. He's found the grace of the Lord at work in the people. What is it that he feels this church needs? It says they need teaching. So he goes to find his friend. He's known for some time. He goes looking for a gentleman by the name of Paul. He says it brings him in and for a whole year they teach the people. Now we could camp there, but what is it that was so essential and necessary in the growth and the formation and the development of the church of Antioch? Remember, it's, it's been birthed with this sense of evangelism, of these people scattered. They've proclaimed the gospel. A great many have believed. And that's wonderful. We've talked a lot about the need for us to proclaim the gospel. But let's never overlook or forget the importance of there being solid teaching to build up the people of God. That's what Barnabas says. We need Paul here. What did he teach? We don't know. Although we can presume, we can probably draw some correlations with Paul's letters. I have no doubt that he taught and expounded from scriptures the grace of God. That was his heart. That was his passion. So for a year it says they were taught and they were built up and it was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. Verse 27 says, now in those days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the spirit that there'd be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined every one of them, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So here we get another glimpse into the church at Antioch. We've seen a number of different aspects and elements, and here in verse 27 we see the prophetic active and at work in the church to the extent that, I mean... Imagine this, often I think as, as churches we're very good at responding when there is times of crisis, when there's disaster, when there's issues around us. But in this instance, the prophetic word is actually making them aware of something that is yet to happen. Wouldn't that be amazing? The Lord comes and says, actually, I want you to be prepared for what is next happening around you. And it says they're so moved by the prophetic word that they sow into and they give generously to provide for those who would be affected by this famine that was yet to come. So the prophetic was at work and these were generous people. It says the disciples determined. Now, disciples is not a select group. That term there literally means the believers. Everybody who was a part of this church gave generously as they could towards meeting the need of that which the Lord had revealed was to come. We're now seeing chapter 12, a little interlude. We, uh, meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, get a perspective on James and Peter and Herod the king. But let's just look at a few verses in Acts 13 and then see what there is that we can learn from this passage of Scripture. So we're back in Antioch again. It says, Now there were in the, the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menin, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And we don't have too much time to unpack this particular list and group of people. But let me just say this. If you thought your home group was interesting... It is nothing compared to this diverse, 
people from different ethnic backgrounds, different upbringing, right? From the Pharisee of Pharisees, Jewish people, to lifelong friends, some translations literally say the household of King Herod, through to different corners of the globe. And what I think that believes that and illustrates to us is God puts different people together for a reason. See, it's not always, church is not always supposed to be a gathering of people who are all like-minded and agree on every single issue. In fact, one of the hallmarks, I would suggest, of the gospel is people unite together through the blood of Christ that normally would never associate with one another. There's rich, there's free, there's black, there's what, there's every socioeconomic educational sphere that exists, all united together, all working together to accomplish that which the Lord would do. This church here, as the church has done throughout the century, defied the cultural norms by not conforming to the ways of the world and segregating, but being built together, not upon any social agenda, not be- upon any like-mindedness other than the faith and the blood and the power and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see this unique group of people, diverse not only in their background, but also in their giftings. Prophets, teachers are all here. It says in verse 2, a couple more verses, while they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas. Again, here the Holy Spirit leading and guiding his people very clearly. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And this begins not only in the book of Acts, but in this story and segment of the journey and the unfolding of the people of God as they accomplish the work of God, the great commission, the beginning of three primary Missionary movements that would turn the world upside down. Paul and Barnabas, they're sent off. And Just one more verse. I love it. In verse 4 it says, Sent out by the Holy Spirit, his power evident in releasing and sending these two men, setting them aside to accomplish great things through them. And so I want us to focus on this. That's the passage of Scripture. And here's a couple of reflections and thoughts for us, to ponder upon, for us to learn. Remembering so often as we come to this book, we talked at the beginning, there's this tension at times between seeing the book as something, the book of Acts, as a narrative that's prescriptive or descriptive. Prescriptive being everything there is, it's prescribing something that we must do versus the book of Acts being a description of what God did that we can glean from and take from. And we talked about the fact that there is a bit of both. And so I think as we look at this church in Antioch, this church that God used here to begin the uh, missionary movement that spread throughout the world as he continues to use it as a base and a hub, there is many things that for us are worthy of our attention. And I think what's clear here as you put the pieces together is that, and this is point number one, see the Lord's intention always was to release Paul and Barnabas, and here it's Barnabas and Paul, and that will switch both in terms of the narrative and arguably the importance in the way God would use them. 
But that was always the Lord's intention and mission was to release them and to send them forth to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul would become known as the apostle to the Gentiles. And yet, again, here we see this very necessary process. You see, the door was open wide through Peter and Cornelius to the Gentiles. And yet there's a process of at least 12 months, possibly longer, where what does God do? He brings these people scattered through persecution. He plants them in a church. Barnabas comes. He brings Paul. The church is built up. They're encouraged. And eventually, I love this strange sense of irony because, remember, Paul was one of the key people as Stephen was stoned. He was key in the scattering of the saints. And yet, it'll be those very same saints that are key in the sending of Paul in the full working out of God's purpose and plan. So it was always the Lord's intention, but there was a purpose. And so often in the kingdom, there is, if you like, a, there's a, a conception, there's a word, there's a promise given. God makes it clear that this is something that he wants to do. But then there is a process, there's a growth, there's a maturing, there's a developing that is necessary. How does that growth take place? What is it? That is essential as the Lord outworks his plan here. I would say this. What was essential was that all that the Lord wanted to do was birthed through a community. It was birthed through a church. You see, he didn't just open the door wide and then say, all right, Paul and Barnabas, it's time for you to go. You're going to preach and proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. He drew these people. He planted them in a church. He taught them, he built them up to a place that as they were released, they were released through a community. They were sent out from a community. They were supported with and by and continually, not just initially, but as we read on, it was all done within the context of a group of people. He didn't pick two individuals in isolation. He picked two people that he planted within a community and then in the fullness of his time, he sent out from there to accomplish his purpose and plan. And in fact, I would, I would make this assessment and suggestion. This reality that we see here in Acts chapter 11 and 13 becomes a pattern that we see throughout the rest of Scripture. As Paul goes and proclaims, what does he do? What's his, primarily mo- his primary mode of bringing the gospel to the known world? Is it evangelical crusades and campaigns? Is it, you know, snazzy media advertisements? Well, I'll give you the answer and we'll see this as we go through. But it's Paul planting churches. He's making disciples. He's living with people for extended periods of time. He's not just in one week for a conference. There is some exceptions. There's some places that he moves through and he's only there for a shorter period of time. But they're the exception, not the rule. He goes there and he gets planted in the community and he establishes a community and he teaches them and he trains them and he disciples them and then he calls them to go and plant more churches. You see, the point here is really simple. God uses a people, not just an individual. Even an individual as incredibly anointing, as used, who's used as powerfully as Paul and Barnabas. It's birthed through a church, they're sent through the church, they're encouraged and supported through a church. And in fact, I cannot read this and not see the correlation to 
the very beginning of the story where God gives his disciples the Great Commission. And what's the very first thing that happens? The description of this newly formed church. What is it? It's a group of people, isn't it? Connected and committed to one another. God's method from the beginning, God's method here as the gospel spreads to the Gentiles, and God's method until he returns again will be to use and accomplish all that that he desires to do through not just individuals, but through a people. Somebody nod so that I know you're awake and alive. And let me give you an illustration and an example. See, I, I had this uh, particular phase and season in my life, and this will probably reveal something about the way that I think through things, but I love to tinker and experiment and find different ways around a problem. And in our previous house, not currently the property we live in, we lived in uh, a suburb of Tuggeranong. It was a beautiful place, slope block. The one problem with all the trees and the, the, the degree of slope that was on the land is that you wouldn't get any sun in the backyard. And I always had this desire to have a bit of a veggie patch growing. And literally, it's probably a slight exaggeration, but it felt like with the angle and the trees and the shade, you'd get about 10 days of sun in a year. Like, that was it. And so it was virtually impossible to grow anything in the backyard, even in the middle of summer. And so I wrestled through this. I thought, what can I do? I did a bit of research online And at that stage, I hadn't heard at all of the word aquaponics or hydroponics or any other non-soil methods of growing vegetables. I thought, this is fascinating, you know. And they promoted, of course, just a few few drops of the secret juice, and all of a sudden, you get tomatoes the size of Jupiter, you know, this fruit, and it grows 15 feet tall. It's no effort at all. It just literally pops out of plastic tubes, and it's amazing. So I thought, that is the solution that I need. And I found that there was a little hydroponic store actually just around the corner from where the other church building was, and I turned up there one day. And at that stage, well, it probably still is like this, but there's a certain character type of people that are interested in some of these alternate growing methods. And I walked in, and the gentleman greeted me, and he said, so what are you wanting to grow? And I said, look, I'm just, I'm just interested in growing some vegetables. And he kind of gave me that look. He's like, oh, yeah, we're all growing vegetables. He said, in fact, in here we, call it, we just call it tomatoes. We're growing tomatoes. I said, no, I am actually growing tomatoes, just tomatoes. Just give me whatever I can to grow tomatoes. And that began a process where I had, well, I think, a reasonably elaborate, certainly reasonably expensive setup to attempt to grow tomatoes with no soil, had uh, PVC piping, had all the sorts of growing mediums. I had electronic timers with misting and watering systems. And I mean, it was a decently elaborate setup. And there was some success in my growing. I grew some plants to a certain height. But something struck me one day as I examined my little science experiment gone wrong in my house attempting to grow things. I thought, isn't it interesting the effort and the money and the expense that I've gone to to try and grow something that literally there's no substitute for just putting it in the ground. There's just no substitute. There is no substitute for the real thing. And I think in our modern world, we've got to understand that there is no substitute in the kingdom of God for community. We seem to do whatever we can in our fast-paced lives to just do the minimum, to just 
connect on some level. But we've got to realize that there is a need. If we want to grow as a church, if we want to grow as individuals, there's no substitute. All the fancy technology, all the gadgets, all the misting systems, all the you know, pseudo-connection type emphases that I can apply in my own life. There is no substitute for getting down and dirty in real, genuine commitment and community with one another. And if we want to be an Antioch church, we've got to come back to that place where we recognize and realize the essential reality of community. We do. We just do. So that's number one. And the others, I promise, will be a little shorter. So number one, they, they were a people connected together. Number two, they were a church that was marked by their desire to seek the Lord. They were a seeking church. Let me just read to you again Acts 13. It says in verse 2, Now while they were worshipping, some translations, and I love this phrase better, they translate that particular word in the Greek, while they were ministering to the Lord. And bear in mind, this is not describing some meeting. It's not like they got together and said, you know what, we need to have a prayer and worship night. Next Sunday night, we're getting together. The context here is that they were a people that continually, this, this, was just, this is what they did as a people group. They were all there together, and they had a practice of ministering to the Lord, it says, and fasting. Some translations say praying and fasting. It's all connected. They ministered to the Lord, and they sought his will. They sought him in prayer. They sought him by fasting, by laying down, by getting, getting rid of anything that would prevent and hinder them in hearing the word and the voice of God, spending time in his presence. See, they were a church that were marked as a seeking people. Are we a seeking people or are we seekers? Are we seeking to minister or are we seeking to be ministered to? Now, the wonderful thing is that as we gather, God's heart is to bless us. Don't get me wrong. That, that is his intention. But I, I've noticed this over the years. I've had many times people have come to me and they've said, oh, it was an amazing service. You know, I just got so blessed. That was amazing. The Lord really touched me. Praise God. That's wonderful. Do you know what I've heard so very rarely is, you know, that was an amazing service because I just came and I really felt like I ministered to the Lord. I just blessed him like I just brought my offering before him. I just laid it all on the altar. What an incredible time in the presence of the Lord that was. And I, I give that perhaps awkward illustration just to make this point. How often is the heart of why we come to worship for us? It's to be blessed. It's to be ministered to. How often could we say, no, this describes us. We are a people and we gather to minister to the Lord. We do. We gather to minister. That's, that is primarily why we're here, to bring our offerings to Him. As Paul said, to present our bodies a living sacrifice. We're there. If we get blessed in the process as we do, that's, that's the bonus. But the, primarily, the, the primary reason we come is not for us. It's not to worship us. It's not for what we can get. It is what we can give. And I'd say the modern Western church in particular, the third world church really has this down pat far more than we do. But we have made the center of Christianity 
about us, about coming to be blessed and be ministered to. And yes, the Lord wants to bless us and minister to us. Don't discount that. But the primary reason for us gathering. And I love this about the church of Antioch. They came to minister to the Lord. The second part of that is it says they came to minister, but not just minister. They came fasting and praying and seeking the will of the Lord. You see, we see very clearly throughout both of the passages or all the passages of Scripture we read, there's, there's no doubt that the hand of the Lord was at work in the midst of his people. What did it look like? Well, the Holy Spirit was just leading and guiding, wasn't it? Like he was leading and directing here, he was releasing here, he was drawing people in there, he was sending people out. Like clearly the hand of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, his power, his presence, his leading and his guiding was at work. And I'd say, well, what is it that we have to do to become that kind of people? Well, number one on the list is we've got to actually seek. We've got to, we've got to know what it is to seek his will. We've got to ask. We have not because we ask not. And I believe that we've lost the reality of truly seeking God, of wrestling through. Well, what is God actually saying? Because that takes effort and energy to seek him out. Another conversation I have all the time is people saying, well, you know, I'm, I'm heading here or I'm moving there or, well, what, what do you think, pastor, about this? I'm considering this big change in my life. And I say, well, have you prayed about it? What does the Lord say? Do you, do you know, I would say probably nine out of ten times, that's almost foreign. And the response you get is, well, I mean, I haven't heard otherwise. Like, I, I, I think it's a good idea, so I guess it's okay. I guess God's, I guess God's good with it. And I think we have lost, I don't know whether it's apathy or whether it's genuinely the desire, the need, the urgency, the privilege, the priority of being a people who know how it is to really wrestle with God to seek his will. What is he saying to you personally? What's he saying to your family? What's he saying to us as a church and a people, to the church? And too often we're just kind of like, well, I don't know, I guess... You know, I guess he'll let us know if we're not doing the right thing. I guess I'm good with it, so he's probably good with it. Well, where are the people who are willing to gather together to minister to him, to pray and to seek and to fast until we know what it is that his will is? To ask and to seek and to knock. Let me illustrate it this way. I came across a video. In fact, it was shared on one of the men's groups that we have on there. The, um, the WhatsApp group there, but it was a, an interview with a gentleman by the name of John Lennox. He's a, a scientist, he's a philosopher, wonderful guy, he's got a lot of good books and other information out there. And he was asked at the end of this interview, he said, have you got any words of wisdom? You're a, a father and a grandfather. What is it that you would leave with your kids or your grandkids? Just you know, one thing, a couple of things, and I'll just read it because otherwise I'll mess up his words, much more eloquent than mine. He said this, he said, this is what I'd say, our lives rush by, busyness has robbed us of time. People say I have no time, and yet if you think you have no time, ask yourself how much time I've spent in the last week fiddling with a piece of digital equipment. Does that kind of like, for anybody else? (laughs) Doing things in no way related to my professional life, and then decide if you have any time. We're robbing ourselves of the most important thing in life if we are Christians, seeking fellowship with God through his word. 
You will never make any impact, he says, in this world by reading your Bible for five minutes in the evening before you hop into bed. I'm brutally brutally practical. You husbands will never make any impact in this world if you're not praying with your wives and leading your family spiritually. You just won't. It's not possible. We need to be intentional to make time to get to know God. It takes input. It takes work. And he continues on. What is his words of wisdom? Do not forsake or forget that which is important. And above all other things, that's knowing him. It's seeking him. And it's not a five-minute before you jump in bed operation. It's a lifestyle where he is the priority and the focus, whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you're parenting kids, whether you're retired. We need to prioritize that reality of seeking him. And is it little wonder then that in that place of seeking, that's where God speaks and says, set apart Barnabas and Paul, and he launches something because they're a church that has bothered to prioritize. They've recognized the need, the absolute essential need of seeking the Lord. I'll leave that point there. There's other good elements for another day. So they were a seeking church. God uses a community. They were a seeking church. Number two, and I promise the next two will be quicker, they were a serving church. One thing I love about this picture here is that every time we come across them, it's it's not just the work of one individual or two individuals. It's the church together. Everybody has a part. Everybody has a role to play. If there's gifts need to be met, then the church gives There's teachers who are brought in to teach. There's prophets prophesying. There's apostles apostolizing. There's the people, whatever that is. There's the people praying. They're fasting. They're they're seeking the Lord. Everybody is there. Everybody is involved. Everybody is a part of what the, the Lord is doing in the midst. And see, again, I think we've really lost our way in the modern church because we've become the church of individuals rather than the church of the everybody's. Like that is the picture. It's supposed to be a body. A body doesn't work when you have one arm or one mouthpiece. A body only functions when we're all working together, when we're discovering our God-given gifts and potentials. We've become far too dependent upon methods and ministers. And if we're truly to discover our call as Vision Church, If we're truly to discover the call of the church in general, then we've got to discover again the church of the everybodies, not just the church of the individuals. If you could pray for something for our church, pray for this. Don't just pray for me. I know that I need it. And please do pray for me. Don't hear that wrong. But pray for us. Because our strength as a church is not just going to be based on one person or a team of people. It's going to be based on the strength of the everybody. Everybody has a role to play. Everybody has a call of God upon their life. And I long to see that day where it is, the teachers teaching, the prophets prophesying, where we're working together to to love, to serve, to worship God, and to be light in an ever-darkening place. Everybody has a place. They were a serving church. And very lastly, finally, but very importantly, they were ascending church. They were. They're ascending. We could say they were a giving church. They were a generous church in 
every sense of the word. They gave God their best. So I love this picture here as it says they're seeking, they're ministering the Lord, they're praying, they're fasting. The Lord says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. Now, isn't that interesting? Paul and, Sarnabas, uh, Paul and Barnabas have just been brought in. I mean, they've experienced great things over the last 12 plus months. It says the church has grown, it's exploded. Barnabas was an encourager. We read elsewhere that he also had a prophetic gifting. He's releasing the word of the Lord. Paul was clearly a teacher. He's teaching. I mean, there's fantastic things going on in the church. And how many of us, if we were in that church, would be like, hang on a second, we need the Paul and the Barnabas. Like, those guys are staying here. Send somebody else. We need... Paul, and we need Barnabas. But see, this shows to me a couple of things. First of all, it shows God's heart. His heart was not just to have a thriving church community. His heart was not just to build this church up. His interest was not just in the seeding capacity. His interest was in the sending capacity, the influence the church could have not just within a community, but without the four walls of the church. How often do we get caught up in our mission just being here, in building the ministry here, in making sure that there's bums on seats? What if we measured the health and the success of the church by the sending capacity, by the giving capacity, not just by service attendance, but by the reality and the outwork of God's purpose and plans in the community around us. See, it also speaks to this for the church and for Paul and Barnabas. I mean, let's think of them for a moment. The church is one aspect. They probably didn't want to lose Paul and Barnabas, but I'm pretty sure if I was Paul or Barnabas, I'd be thinking myself, well, hang on, Lord, there's, there's a really successful ministry going on here. I mean, the book sales are up. We're, we're going well. The church is growing. And in fact, church history would tell us that this church not only became influential, but it was large. Some estimates say that the the church of Antioch grew up to 100,000-odd people, which in those days was huge. It was a mega church. It, It grew. It was successful, and it continued to grow. But Paul and Barnabas were not the sort of people that would hold on to their comfort or hold on to their ministry, were they? They responded. They said, all right, Lord, if that's what you're calling for us to step out, then... We will go, and I'm sure they knew probably even at that stage that that is something that would cost them. I mean, there was shipwrecks, there was beatings, there was time spent in prison. It wasn't like the Lord was saying, step away from your prominent ministry and I'm going to give you even more wealth and success. And certainly the Lord used them in powerful, powerful ways. But there was a journey that they had to walk upon. See, Paul and Barnabas were people whose priority was obedience. Lord, send me wherever that might be that you would have me go. Let's get the worship team back up as we just bring it to a close. Are we ascending people? Are we a people who genuinely can say before the Lord, we are a church, we're a people that put everything on the altar? We give the Lord our best. Lord, what, what is it that you're asking for? What is it that you want? We're a people who put it all on the altar. 
Are we the Paul and Barnabas? Are we interested in building our ministries, whatever that might look like, in, just within the church, but in terms of life, success, the dollars in the bank account, the positions? There's nothing wrong with that at all. I mean, the Lord will lead us, the Lord will bless us, the Lord will guide us and praise God when he does. But are we a people like Paul and Barnabas for whom the greatest joy it's not what we can get. It's what we can give. It's what we can lay before him. Lord, if that's your will, if that's your will, let's go. Let's do it. Let's move from this place of, of comfort and success and let's step out into the unknown and follow you. I've been thinking about this and I'll bring it to a close here, but I, uh, I was going to end again just with a, a getting old and age, a birthday reflection. I know I did last week as well, so... Apologies, I'll move on next week. But I did say last week that both my wife and I moved into a new decade. And one thing I love about my wife, there's many, many things, and she's not here this morning to hear the wonderful things that I'm saying about her yet again, but you can relay them to her. But she's, she's someone who, uh, when she moved into the decade, we're now in, into our 40s, I said to her just uh, a week or so ago, I said, how are you feeling? Like, that's a big transition into your 40s. And she, uh, she looked at me. She said, you know what? I'm just overwhelmingly thankful. Just, I'm just so thankful. And she just began to rattle off. I'm thankful for this, and I'm thankful for that, and thankful for the way God's done this. And it hasn't all been easy, but she's like, man, I'm just, I'm just so thankful. And I'm like, man, that's amazing. <laughs> And she's an amazing woman. And she's definitely the glass half full person. She just is. She's positive. She's optimistic. And I wouldn't say I'm the glass half empty, but I'm certainly the glass of, you know, other potential opportunities sort of a perspective. As in I'm reevaluating 40 years spent on the planet. And there's so many things that I am thankful.